0: Brothers and sisters, we're carrying on in our verse by verse study in this uh, letter, the uh, letter of James. And um, when I was uh, studying this text this week, uh, it reminded me of some of the great doctrines of Scripture. And, you know, one of the greatest doctrines in Scripture, brothers and sisters, is the doctrine of being justified by faith. Faith alone. Uh, You know, when you read about that doctrine, you see the reality that man is a sinner, that man needs to be redeemed, that God has decided in his love, his grace, and his mercy to provide that redemption through Jesus Christ. And you see very simply in the scripture that if you believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, that he died for your sins that he rose again from the dead on the third day, God justifies you. God renders you innocent. He forgives you of all of your sin, past, present, and future. He gives you the gift of Jesus' righteousness. You are given that as a gift, once and for all and forever, the first time that you believe in Jesus. Uh, To sum up this doctrine, we we can look at a couple of sections of Scripture. In Romans 3, verse 20, we spoke about this last week. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There is nothing that we can do in our own ability that can save us. We cannot render ourselves innocent before God. But then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, works, lest anyone should boast. It's God that saves. It's God that saves by his grace. And you enter into that through faith. It's a gift. We can never do it by ourselves. It's never by Works, Brothers and sisters, this doctrine of justification by faith is an awesome, incredible doctrine. It's the cornerstone, really, of the Christian life. And we should be thankful for the fact that through Jesus we are given this gift. But is that all we, all we get when we're saved? Are we just given this ticket into heaven and then you can carry on with your old life? You can carry on in sin and just kind of party on, man. Well, we know that that's not the case. We know that when we become Christians, we're called to live a changed life. You see that very clearly in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, where it says the following. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And in those verses Paul is responding to a wrong response to grace in the Roman church. There were people in the Roman church that were saying, well, if grace abounds, we can just carry on in sin, can't we? And Paul says, no, that can never be the case. Because if you truly have saving faith, then you have made a reality for yourself the fact that you died with Christ. That your old man died with him. That you were raised with Jesus when Jesus was raised. So that you can live a new life, led by the Spirit, not under the authority of sin anymore. You can say no to sin when you truly have saving faith. But what of works? We've read a lot about works in this text that I've just read. How do works fit in to our life as a Christian? Many of you have probably heard... Messages or sermons about works before, some good, some bad. When I think of works, I think of how Paul and James def- defined works in the scripture. And works are our acts of obedience to God. And as Christians, when we get saved, when we're given the spirit, when we're changed from the inside out, God calls us to good works. And we see that Clearly, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are called, brothers and sisters, to have faith in Jesus, to have a changed life, and to walk in good works. And you might be asking the question, Why am I spending time talking about this? Why am I talking about the doctrine? of justification by faith, the doctrine of a changed life, the doctrine of good works. Well, I'm trying to make the point that we, as 21st century Christians, we have the great blessing of having the entirety of Scripture. That we can dwell into these doctrines, that we can uh, look at them in detail, we can receive from what God says in his word, and we can apply them to our lives. But you see, back in the 1st century... They didn't have that. They didn't have the fullness of the New Testament. The, the, the book of the New Testament that spends the most time speaking about these doctrines, the book of Romans, wasn't going to be written for another 20 years. This epistle was written between AD 45 to AD 48, and the book of Romans was written in the AD 60s. And so they didn't have a, the fullness of the New Testament, These doctrines were being brought forth in people's lives, but because it wasn't written down, there was a lot of naivety, there was a lot of ignorance, and when you get that in the church, you get errors. You get errors about major doctrines. And one of the errors that these Jewish Christians were falling into was they were believing that you just had to have faith and no evidence of that faith in works. The error that I like to call faith without any evidence. And this was fueling their sin. This was giving them an excuse to sin. Maybe the sin that we talked about last week of showing partiality. And James wants to deal with that. He wants to deal with that error today in this text. Now you'd think that with us in the 21st century, if we have the entirety of Scripture... Uh, we'd not be naive anymore, or we wouldn't be ignorant. And that this error of faith without any evidence wouldn't be around anymore. But the sad news is, is the same error is in the church today, as it was in the first century. There are many ministries that teach that all you need to do is believe in Jesus once, not have a changed life, you can get on with sinning, and you'll go to heaven. And they don't realize that when they do that, they are stumbling people, maybe to be a false convert. They are discrediting the gospel, and they're even potentially stopping the work of God. Maybe some of you in here today believe that very thing. You believe that all you need to do is just believe in Jesus once, or maybe a few times in your life, and you'll go to heaven. Maybe you've gone to a church that teaches that very thing. Well, God has a message for you today. God wants to show you through this text that, yes, you are indeed justified by faith alone, but there has to be evidence of that faith. And that is through works. And it doesn't just apply to those people, but it applies to every one of us. Because we can all fall into this error. So let's be open to hear what the Spirit wants to speak today. So, James is going to deal with this very error in, I'd say, three distinct sections in this uh, piece of scripture. In verses 14 to verse 17, he's going to show us that faith does indeed need evidence. In verses 18 and 19, he's going to show us that you can't separate faith and works, they're inseparable. And then from verses 20 to 25, he's going to show us that this idea of faith needing evidence is not a new thing. It's been in the Old Testament. And he's going to talk about a couple of characters there. So let's look at each section. So firstly, he starts off in verses 14, 15, and 16. And he says the following. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Now, in these first three verses, he's asking a series of questions. The first question is very simple. He says, Look, if someone says they have faith, but they don't have works, What does it profit or what advantage is that if someone lives that way? He then says, can faith save him? Now those four words have caused a lot of controversy in the last 2,000 years in the church. These were probably the words that Martin Luther read when he said that this letter was the epistle of straw. Because when you read those words, it seems to contradict what the Apostle Paul says In the book of Romans, where he says that you're justified justified by faith alone. And Martin Luther looked at this and he thought, well, how can that be? How can he ask the question, can faith save him? This is also the words that are used by very legalistic Christians in very legalistic churches. that say, hey, we need to believe in Jesus and follow certain standards. Because look, even James seems to suggest that in these verses. But both of those responses to these words are wrong. They're wrong because when you look at the original Greek, it should say, can this faith save him? Referring back to the faith that he is questioning in the first question. A faith that says, yeah, I believe, but I've got no works to evidence it. He takes it further in verses 15 and 16 where he brings up a very practical example. He speaks of a brother or sister in the church who's naked, which means that they don't have really any clothes. They're destitute of daily food, which means they cannot get their daily food needs met. And one of the brothers or sisters says, well, okay, we see that you really need things. But go, be, be, be of peace, be filled, be warmed. But you don't actually do what you're saying. He says, what on earth is the profit of that? What advantage is that faith that says things but doesn't do things. And so having asked these questions, he then makes this first really radical statement in verse 17 where he says, Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that word dead there means literally non-existent. No life. I think the word is nekros. Nothing there. James makes a really radical statement there. But how does he get to that statement from these questions in verses 14, 15 and 16 and then makes his declaration in verse 17? Because remember, he doesn't have the book of Romans. He doesn't have the whole of the New Testament. How did he get it? Well, I believe that he got this conclusion from his relationship with the apostles. The original 11 and Matthias who was added before the day of Pentecost. And the apostles would have taught James about what Jesus um, taught, what he said, what he meant by what he said. And when you look at what Jesus taught, brothers and sisters, in the scriptures, in the gospels, it's very clear that Jesus listened, he believed that faith needed evidence. We see it very clearly in our first verses in John 7. Verses 37 to 38, where Jesus says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so listen, Jesus in these verses is talking about those who would believe in him. Us, Christians. And he says, "For those who believe in him, the spirit will come into their hearts, and the spirit will naturally come out of that person's heart in rivers of living water. There will be an external evidence of what has been worked inside that person. As they put their faith in Jesus, as they've been born again, the spirit will come out of that person to bring evidence of that faith." Well what is that evidence? But we see it clearly in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, where Jesus said the following. He said, "'Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit.' Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen, therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And Jesus is clear in these verses that there there will be people in the church who say they're Christians but they're not really Christians. They haven't been born again. And he says you will know them by their fruit that they're producing in their life. A good tree will produce good, tr- good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. That's how we will know them. That's the evidence. The evidence is the fruit that's been produced in someone's life. What is that fruit? Well, Jesus teaches us in the next few verses in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus makes it clear in these verses that the bad tree that produces bad fruit is someone who does things, has certain actions in their life, But it doesn't come from a relationship with Jesus. That's the bad fruit. People who do things, maybe in the name of God, but, listen, they don't know God. They don't have Jesus within them. They don't have the spirit in their hearts. But with the reverse is true. That someone who produces good fruit is someone who knows Jesus, has a spirit within them, the spirit's coming out of their life, and they are doing acts of obedience to Jesus. Our good works are the evidence of our saving faith. Jesus teaches very clearly in the Gospels, brothers and sisters, that faith has to have evidence. And that evidence is the good works that are in our life. So how do good works come in our life? How are they produced? We're well, going back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Remember it said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's the verse that teaches us how good works comes in our life. The first thing that we know is that good works are not for us. They are for God. We are his workmanship. We do good works not for ourselves. We do them for God. But then listen... He says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And so God, listen, has decided before the foundation of the world, the good works that he's called every single one of you to. He knows what they are. And he has, in a sense, saved you for those good works. Notice the natural progression that good works will come from saving faith. That we don't have to make up good works. We don't have to do good works to try and keep our salvation or to appease God. They come naturally from saving faith. God has decided them for us already. And that we should walk in them by the Spirit. This is how it works. Now, I think that this works in people's lives as believers in the following way we get saved, we're born again. The Spirit begins to work in our lives, begins to change our hearts, begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc. And as that fruit is produced, God begins to call us to good works. And as those fruits are produced, they encourage us, they spur us on, and we follow the good works that God has called us to. It's a natural progression led by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to notice that in me teaching this, we can't get away from the fact that this verse in Ephesians 2, it celebrates the sovereignty of God in our good works. God is in control of the good works that he's called us to. He saved us for those good works. He's going to lead us in those good works by his spirit. But even though that's the case, that listen does not mean that we don't have personal responsibility in the calling that we have from God. We have a choice to make. When God calls us to a good work, he gives us a choice of whether we'll follow that or whether we won't. I've had many situations in my walk with the Lord where I've known exactly what God wants me to do. It's been as clear as day. But he says, it's your choice, Adam. You choose what you're going to do. Are you going to follow me in what I want you to do, or are you going to follow the world? And by God's grace, so far, I think I've been obedient to the good works that God has called me to. But we have a choice. We have personal responsibility. And the fact that we have this, I think, is clearly taught by the fact that Jesus is going to judge us one day, each one of us in here, with how we've been faithful to the good works that he calls us to. That's clearly taught in 1 Corinthians 3, when it says that if when you're standing before Jesus on that day and he's assessing your works, and your works have been built upon the foundation of Christ and been done by the Spirit, your works will survive and you'll be rewarded. But if when you stand before Jesus on that day and he's assessing the things that he called you to, and you weren't faithful to what he asked you to do, and you built upon the flesh rather than him, you will suffer loss. So there's a reward for our obedience and there's a loss if we're not obedient. So that definitely teaches, listen, that we have personal responsibility. God decides what he wants us to do. He leads us in what he wants us to do. But we do have a choice in following that through. That's how it works. That's how good works come about in our life. But the point that James is wanting to make... In these first first four verses, is that faith has to have evidence. Faith has got to have evidence, and that evidence is good works in a believer's life. And he's teaching that it is inconceivable for someone to say that they can have faith without works. And it's inconceivable because it goes against the very thing that Jesus taught when he was alive. So we have to have evidence in our faith. That's our first section. That's the first point that James wants to make. Our second section is in verses 18 and 19, where James says the following. He says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now what James is doing in these two verses is he's writing basically a description of an argument. Uh, It's got a technical term, it's called a diatribe in Greek literature apparently. And he's describing basically a shouting match. I mean, have you ever had one of those shouting matches with someone before when you're arguing? Well, I, I think this, and the other person says, no, I think that. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And no one really gets anywhere. There's no real conclusion that comes from that kind of argument. And that's kind of what he's describing in verse 18. He says there that the person that believes in the error of uh, faith without evidence says, Well, you've got works and I've got faith. And that's what I believe and you should be okay with that. And I'm not going to change my mind. And then James comes back and says, well, you show me that faith. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. It's this kind of boxing match. Boom, boom, back and forth. But the point he's trying to make is is that this person that believes this error, that you can have faith without works, is trying to separate works and faith. Trying to sort of divide them up too much. And James knows that this is completely unbiblical, it's completely unscriptural, because it goes again against the very life of Jesus Christ. When you look at the life of Christ, he never separated faith and works, they always went together. The faith that Jesus had in the Father was always reflected in what he did, what he said, in his interactions with people, and specifically when he was obedient to what the Father called him to do, to go to the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus didn't like say one day, okay, I'm about faith today, and then the next day he was about works. He never separated it. If you look at the life of Christ, you'll find that. I mean, even Jesus said this in John 7. Uh, Verses, um, not John 7, John 14, sorry. In John 14, verses 7 and 9, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Notice that Jesus is saying here, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no separation between my faith and what I believe about God and what I am doing in my life. That was Philip's problem. He didn't get it. And so Jesus is challenging him there. But the point is, is that you cannot separate faith and works. They always go together. And James develops this in verse 19, where he says, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. Where he says there, you believe that there's one God, he's referring back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which says that there's one God, and all the Jews believe that. And the oneness there in Deuteronomy 6, 4 speaks of the unity in the Godhead. And he says, if you believe that, that's good, that's a good thing to believe, but you better know that even the demons believe that. Why did the demons believe that? Well, because they were there. Even before this world was made, demons were not demons, they were angels. They were in heaven they could see God, they could see the oneness or the unity of the Trinity in a way that we can't even understand. But then they rebelled against God with Satan, they got kicked out of heaven, they came to the earth, now they're demons, but they still believe that God is one. And they tremble, because they know that that God is going to judge them. You see, in the life of Christ, don't you, whenever Jesus would go up to a demon, often they'd say, is it time Is it time that you're going to judge us? The demons believe, in a sense, the same thing that we believe. But the difference should be the demons, they don't follow God, but we should. In our life as Christians, we should live out the doctrine that we believe. But the demons don't do that. They believe in one God, but they don't follow him. And the reason why... James is saying this here, is he's saying to these guys, this is very serious, he's saying look you guys believe the right thing, but you're not living out what you believe in your life, you're not living out your doctrine correctly, and in doing that he's saying Do you know what, you are in association with demons that's kind of a, a conversation stopper isn't it, and he's being shocking Because he wants to grab their attention. He wants to say to them, look, this is serious, guys. This error of you saying that faith doesn't need evidence is a serious error. And you are basically in association with evil when you live that out. He's using this because he loves them. James loves these people because he was their pastor. God loves them. And God wants to shock them to draw them back, to get them away from error. And this is often what God will do with us. We all fall, don't we, into wrong ways of thinking about God, about Scripture, about certain ways the Christian life should be, and often God will use the shock tactic to get us back to the right place. I mean, I remember once when I was probably... This is I've been a Christian for probably about two years. And um, I was living in a particular sin at that time. And I remember that I was in the kitchen and I I actually burnt myself. Burnt myself with hot water. And I literally felt like the Lord said to me at that time, Stop doing that sin. It was almost like he had to burn me to get my attention. Now God might not burn you to get your attention, but what I'm trying to say is that God often uses the shock tactic to get our attention. And this is what James is doing here to these believers. But the key thing for us, brothers and sisters, in these two verses is that we cannot and we should not separate faith and works. And we all have a responsibility to hold each other accountable to this. Most of us in here will have a tendency to either overemphasize works or overemphasize resting in faith. We'll either be the type of Christian that will say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really need to do that. I'm, I'm saved. That's okay for me. Or the other type of Christian would be, well, we've got to do this. If we don't do this, then we're in trouble. And they overemphasize works. And each of you will probably fall into one of those two categories. And we need to encourage each other away from those things. Encourage each other to live out this reality that faith and works go together. So for the person who rests in faith and feels like they don't need to do anything we need to encourage them hey what is God calling you to do what's the good work that God wants you to do this year how can you grow in serving in the church this year how can you be fruitful in what God wants you to do for the person who is all about works we need to encourage them to say look hey God's got this God knows what works he's calling you to do. God is going to lead you in those works. You don't need to worry about maintaining good works to keep your salvation. We all need to encourage each other in this, brothers and sisters. It's a really important thing. Because if we go one way or the other, we're in danger of getting into the error that these Jewish Christians were getting into. And it doesn't lead to any fruitfulness. It just leads to a lack of... Real faith, it leads to coldness to God. It, it leads to not really being used of God. So let's encourage each other in that. So our third and final section is in verses 20 to 25. And James starts off this section by saying, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So he, said, he starts off with another question and he's saying, Look, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know that faith without works is dead? Notice he calls the the one in error a foolish man there. And that word for foolish means destitute of spiritual life. It could mean that this person who's in the error is just ignorant and naive. Or it could mean that actually they're not really born again. That they're one of those people that says they're a Christian, but they're not really a believer. So he says, look, this is how I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you that this idea that faith requires evidence is not a new thing that I'm making up. It was there in the Old Testament through two specific characters. And the first is Abraham. So he says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now... What James is referring to there is Genesis chapter 22. When God called Abraham, he actually said he tested Abraham to find out what was in his heart. He said, I want you to offer up your son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And if you remember in that chapter, Abraham was obedient to that. He prepared everything. He traveled there with Isaac and two two companions. When he got there, he separated from those companions. He went up the mountain with Isaac. He actually built the altar, bound Isaac up on the altar, took the knife and was about to slay his son. And God said, no, don't lay a finger on him. And James is saying that in this work that Abraham did in Genesis 22, it says here that that he was justified by that work. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does that word justified mean in this verse? Because it's extremely important that we understand what James is trying to say. The word justified there in the Greek is the same word that Paul uses in Romans to say that you're justified by faith alone. But it can have two meanings. The first meaning is that it can mean rendering someone innocent for the first time. The second meaning can be to show evidence of someone that's been rendered innocent previously. They're the two meanings in the Greek of that word. Now, I would say that this is not referring in this verse... To Abraham being justified for the first time by his works. We know that that happened in Genesis 15. You remember the situation in Genesis 15? Abraham wasn't called Abraham then. He was called Abraham. God said to him, don't fear Abraham. I'm your, very, I'm your shield, your very great reward. Abraham kind of complains to God and says, well God, you've not given me an heir. You've not given me a son. How can I know that? And God says, you will have a son. I promise that you will have an heir. And it says there in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. That is when Abraham was justified by faith. That is when God saw Abraham as righteous because he believed. Once and for all and forever. That's when he was justified. So I would say that in this verse when it says that he was justified by works, it means that his works showed evidence of him being previously rendered innocent in Genesis 15. And you see that very clearly in Genesis 22. In verse 5 you see, you see he says and Abraham said to his young men, "Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship." And listen, And we will come back to you. And so Abraham is showing there that he's being obedient to the call that God has given him, but he believes that God is going to do something, even if he has to sacrifice Isaac, and Isaac will come back with him. Whether that means Isaac's going to be resurrected from the dead, whether it means that he's going to provide another sacrifice, I don't know, but he believed God would keep his promise. And that shows that his work is showing evidence of that saving faith. And then a bit further on in verses 7 and 8, it says this, it says, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering so the two of them went together so Isaac's getting a bit worried as they're going up the mountain he's thinking where's where's the sacrifice dad but notice what abraham says he says god will provide the burnt offering he still believed he he still believed in the promise that god had given him that isaac was the promised son that he was going to go on And he was going to make a nation. Again, Abraham's work in being obedient to God was showing his saving faith. And this is what works do. Works do this in a way in our lives, brothers and sisters, that nothing else does. Why? Because when God calls us to a good work, it's often beyond our own ability. It's often beyond our own strength. And the only way that you can do that good work is by saving faith through the anointing of the Spirit. And so these good works, that's how they show evidence. They show the evidence of our saving faith unlike anything else. But there was something else going on as Abraham was working this work in Genesis 22. And we see that in verse 22 here. It says, do you see... The faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. And so we see that not only was his works showing evidence of his faith, but his works were perfecting his faith. His works were maturing his faith. That's a the word there, or completing his faith. How did that happen? Well, it says there that his faith was working together with his works. And what that means... Is it when Abraham was going about his preparations for this work, as he went to Mount Moriah, as he went up the mountain, as he made the altar, as he lifted the knife up? All the time he was saying, Lord, I want to be obedient to what you're calling me to do. I believe that this this son of mine is the promised son. I don't know how this works, Lord, but you've got to do something in my heart. You've got to grow my faith so that I can be obedient to you and still trust that Isaac is the promised son. And so in his work, his faith was being, in a sense, forced to mature and to complete. And this is what was happening. His faith was being made perfect through this work. And so therefore, in verse 23, what does it say? It says, And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so at that point, when Abraham had the knife, and he was about to slay his son, and God said, stop, don't do it. It was at that point that this scripture was fulfilled, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What that means is, is that at that time in his life, that was the time where the most evidence was being shown that he was faithful to God, that he believed in the promises of God. When he first believed in Genesis, 20, Genesis 15, sorry, he believed and there wasn't much evidence there. But as he went through Genesis 22, the evidence was growing all the time. And so functionally in his life, the righteousness that God gave him in Genesis 15 was coming out in his life. In a way which just fulfilled this scripture. And so therefore, he was called the friend of God. Abraham was called the friend of God, brothers and sisters, because the only thing, listen, that can please God is faith. According to Hebrews. He demonstrated that saving faith in such a way where God saw him as his friend. What an amazing thing that is. That God would say, hey, you're my friend. And you're my friend because you believe. And because you believe, you're doing a work in obedience to me, which gives me pleasure. And so therefore, at the end of Genesis 22, God restated the promises to Abraham. And he said, I am going to bless you immensely. Because you believe in me. And you've been obedient to the call that I've given you. And so therefore, James makes this conclusion in verse 24, where he says, You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. And so he's saying there, that look, given this example of Abraham, it's obvious that faith is evidenced. Again, that word justified there in the context means to show evidence. That a man's faith is evidenced by works, and not by just saying that you have faith only. There has to be evidence, and that evidence is good works. And then lastly, in verse 25, he brings up another example. He says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And this is referring to the Gentile prostitute, Rahab, in Joshua chapter 2. She believed in the promises of God. It says in that chapter that she believed that God was going to allow Israel to come and take over the land of Canaan. And that faith, listen, was evidenced by the fact that she received the messages that Joshua sent, and she sent them out another way so that they would not be caught. Again, her actions showed what she believed. She believed. And I believe that he uses this example of Rahab because he knew that if he used the example of Abraham, some of these Jewish Christians would say, oh, well, that's just a great patriarch, Abraham. Obviously, God would call him to certain things. um, But we're just measly Christians. God's not going to call us to anything. And James is saying, no, there was a Gentile prostitute in the Old Testament who was justified by faith and it was evidenced by Her work. And so, again, brothers and sisters, in finishing, James is saying in this text very clearly, very succinctly, very obviously, that if you say that you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe that he's your Savior, that has to be evidenced in your life by works, by good works. And the good news is, is that you know where it says in verse 23 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that that scripture was fulfilled in his life? God wants to do that with every single one of you. God wants to fulfill that scripture in your life. God wants, listen... As you put your faith in Jesus, whenever that was, he wants to show that faith through calling you to good works, through you being obedient. Why? Because he wants to show Jesus to other people, people around you. He wants to show that saving faith to other people who are lost, who are going to hell. So that they may hear the gospel, receive the good news of the gospel and be saved. But he also, listen, he wants to grow your faith. He wants to perfect your faith. He wants to make you more like Jesus, give you a greater experience of Jesus, make you more usable for Jesus, and that happens as our faith grows through works. And if we don't believe that, if we believe this lie and this error, that says that you can just believe in Jesus and have no evidence of that faith, then listen, you're not going to be used of God. God is not going to be pleased with that. He's not going to grow, he's not going to have, have the opportunity to grow your faith if you believe that lie, if you believe that error. And James was obviously concerned about that for these people, but the Spirit is concerned about that for us in here today. Do you believe that lie? Do you believe that error? That you can just believe and have no evidence? Well, there's a consequence to that. That consequence is that you don't grow in faith and God doesn't use you. So turn from that today, if you believe it. He finishes off in verse 26 by saying, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He sums it up in this verse where he uses the example of human beings being alive. Human beings being alive have a body, they have a physical component and they have a non-physical component, our heart or our spirit. And when we die, our spirit leaves our body and there's a separation there. And that person is no longer alive. And he says here, look, when that happens... With someone they're dead, and so faith without works is dead also. It's necros, it's not there. And this is serious. It suggests that if you believe that lie, if you're happy in that lie, then you may not actually have saving faith. And God obviously doesn't want that. He wants everyone to have saving faith. He wants every person to hear the gospel, to have that chance to come to know him, to have a saving faith that will lead that person to be with Jesus forever. And so I would say in finishing in this place this morning, that if you don't know Jesus, then Jesus would say to you that you do have a destination in the future that isn't good. It's eternal hell. He would say that you're dead in your sins and transgressions spiritually. But he wants to make you alive. And he can do that by you putting your faith in him. And I'd encourage you to respond to that good news today. But for those of you who do know the Lord in here this morning, I want you to ask yourself a serious question this week. I want you to ask yourself soberly, is there evidence of good works in my life? Do I really believe that that is required for me to have saving faith? Or am I just kind of swimming along, saying that I believe in Jesus and I'm still living a life of sin? And if there's no evidence of good works in your life, which means being obedient to God and the things that he calls you to do, and you're happy in sin, then that's not a good situation. And I'd encourage you, please come and speak to me or to John. Let's deal with that, let's pray through that. Maybe even some of you now want to deal with that. If you want prayer, if you feel the Spirit's convicting you, then come and speak to me or John or whoever after the service and receive prayer. Because God does not want your faith to be dead. He wants it to be alive for Him. So that you can be fruitful for Him and live in good works.